You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to More to Be Said. This is a podcast from Kingsway Christian Church. It's a longer podcast where we take some bigger questions and try to dig in and help you wrestle with some of the things you've always wondered about. So today, I have my friend Brett Seabold with me. You want to say hi, Brett? Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. This is now our third podcast. In case you haven't listened to the other two, you might go back and, and check those out. But today, we're going to wrestle specifically with what sets Christianity apart from other religions. We're just going to kind of wrestle with, what if I was born in another part of the world. And I was taught about Buddhism or Islam or something else. What I just naturally believe in that isn't that just as good as an alternative as anything else. Before we get into today's podcast, uh, Brett wanted to tell a story about us or me. I'm not sure where he's going to go with this and uh, just help kick things off. Well, I hope, you know, as you get older, Matt, things start to uh, fade a little bit in your memories. And I'm like, I think, I think you were a part of this, uh, this, this adventure we went on, but I do, but I do have some great uh, memories of you, Matt, uh, playing backyard football in college and uh, you, you walking down the hallway, playing your guitar, singing uh, uh, praise songs at the top of your lungs with with other great people on, on, in the dorms there in Cincinnati but I if I remember correctly I think it was my I think you were on this trip it was like my sophomore year my engine died in my car and uh and and you and I can't remember if it was Matt Schmidt Matt Smith, Matt Smitty, Smith, Smitty. Yeah. we yeah. called him Smitty, yeah, Matt Smitty. Smith, yeah, yeah, and maybe Joe Rubino or Bill Balbach, yeah. But you guys drove all the way up with me to Marion, Ohio, yeah. to help me pick up my car, which was where my mother was living at the time. I'm originally from Pennsylvania, but she yeah. had moved to Marion, and I just and it was cold winter, dead of winter, and I just thought that was so cool that you guys were willing to to waste uh, basically six hours of of your lives driving me up there, and then one of of you rode in my car back with me and then two of, of the, I can't remember their car. Yeah. I, I don't remember that trip, but I remember that sounds like that group of guys and something we would have done. I, um, I, I told this story earlier, but I just remember playing football with you and you were one of the really athletic football guys out there. And there was this one time I was running down the sideline. I had the ball and I was mostly faster than the other Bible college guys. And you chased me down. You had the perfect angle and you were about to blow me up. And I tried everything I could to shake you and you were not going to be shaken. And then you just gently knocked me out of bounds and later stood up and you were like, oh man, Matt, I almost lost myself for a moment. We're playing with no pads. You're like, I, I was going to like literally like just slam you out of bounds. And I'm sitting here thinking I would be dead if you had done that. So thank you, Brett, for sparing my life. I am so glad I didn't. <laughs> and I'm so ashamed that I, that I even had that thought. Well, you, that's kind of in that moment, for those of you who don't know, Brett, he's like such a humble guy. He was just like this gentle giant and uh, I'm a little guy. And so thank you for not blowing me up. <laughs> well, thanks for that memory. Man. That's great. <laughs> Coming back to our questions for today. All right. This podcast is what sets Christianity apart from other religions? And I don't know where you want to start with that. Well, I've got a story because you asked me here, do I have, do I have any yeah. stories? And, and I do. I have a, a friend. His name is Valbon Bidici. He is Albanian, but a group, uh, was born in Kosovo. 
uh, which if you know the history of Kosovo is sort of like this state uh, just north uh, of Albania where they speak um, Albanian. But a lot of Kosovar Albanians migrated to Germany where we lived during the, the wars and the conflicts of the 90s. And so I can't remember, I think he was born in Kosovo and came as a young boy to Germany uh, or whether maybe he was born in Germany, but his parents migrated. And by the by the way, I'll just mention this. He and I continue to dialogue to today. This isn't just some friend from the past in Germany. We email at least a couple times every year and we have very deep conversations comparing the Bible and the Quran. Um, we've gone through a lot of things uh, together. He's taken a lot of my questions uh, to his spiritual leaders, his, his imam, and brought them back to me and whatnot. But anyways, we were we played basketball together. He's a he was a big guy about uh, he's about six foot four. We played basketball together. Um, we became good friends. He and I have continued a dialogue. And uh, one late evening after basketball practice in the little village of Edemissen, Germany, he said, "Brett, and I'm translating here. Are are you a Christian because you were raised that way by your parents?" Mm-hmm. Or because it was your own decision? Great question. It's basically uh, what we're talking about today, right? And so we can all play the game of, 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 of reductionism, like some skeptics do, our skeptic friends. The only reason you're a Christian is because your parents were a Christian. Or the only reason you're a Christian is because you grew up in the United States. And by the way, I, I said to him, yes, my, my parents, although they had sort of a nominal um, Lutheran faith growing up, it really was, I, be, I would say, my decision uh, when I was in high school and I, I gave my life to Christ. You know, you could debate what, back and forth whether or not he, he found me. I was lost and, and he found me. But I, I did make a public profession for, for, for Christ, it was baptized into him, and I stand by that today. But this is a po- this is popular a popular thing to do to reduce people to their culture to their language to their skin color to their economic class. This is popular in in critical theory and in Marxist thinking. Reducing people to the tone of their skin, their culture, their economic status, their language, their nation, as if there's nothing transcendent to people, and as if people cannot think or imagine beyond whatever aspect it is that they have just been reduced to. Think about the claim. The only reason you believe X, Y, or Z is because you're an American or whatever. As if all 300 plus million of us agree with each other and share one voice. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so there has to be, yes, we can reduce each other to, you believe this because of that. And there might be some truth to that. At the end of the day, we all sense that we need to break this juggernaut of reductionism somehow, which is akin to breaking the epistemological shackles of postmodernism, which reduces everything to me. In our first podcast, you talked a lot about it's sort of egocentric, self-centered. Not that everything about postmodernism is therefore false and selfish, but it is a lot about the individual um, truth starting here within me and how I, I perceive okay, things. Real quick, Brett, in sure. case our listeners have not yet gone to the first podcast, you should go there. You're going to get a lot more background, but in quick summary form, jump in anywhere I'm wrong. What I heard you say in that podcast is basically 600 to a thousand years ago, give or take, people thought about the world and what was called a pre-modern world. Am I saying that? Yeah, it's yeah. a pre-modern world. Everything was authoritarian. It might be the king, it might be the pope, whatever it is. Things were handed to us and told to us what we do, how we think about the world. Then we moved into 
more modern. This would be around the time of the Reformation. The world would start to be a better place. And it had more to do with like seeking out things. This is where sciences were growing yeah. on the way. And knowledge, knowledge can be known. Can be known and discovered or reasoned to. Right, right. And, but now over the last, I don't, everybody disagrees about when it started, but let's call it 60 years, 80 years. We're looking at post-modernity. Right. We're now out of the modern movement into the way that many of us think today. And so depending on how old you are, say if you're 50 or 40 and under, you're probably postmodern with some dippings of modernism mm -hmm. in there because we're at the overlapping of the ages and the way that we think. So we tend to think today in more of a feelings or experience based. Am I saying that yeah. correctly? Yeah. And so it's not that we don't pursue truth, but you hear this all the time, all over social media. You, you do you, you have your yeah. truth. You live your truth as if truth mm -hmm. is subjective to you and your experience. Right. And, and so I, I suggest what is known as critical realism, which tries to balance both. I'm aware that I am an individual. I bring my experiences to the table. I bring, as uh, Immanuel Kant would say, the, the structures in my mind if I interpret something. Yes, there, I can get things wrong, but do I always therefore necessarily always misinterpret things? Probably not. And so you want to be critically aware of your uh, assumptions, but at the same time, I think we can have a confidence that knowledge is possible about our shared reality, critical realism. We, I'll just say that last uh, sentence again but before Matt's uh, observation. We all sense that we need to break this juggernaut of reju reductionism somehow, being reduced to, the, to those things. You're just a Muslim because you grew up there. Or you're just a Christian because you grew up there. And so this is akin to breaking the epistemological shackles of postmodernism. And so we often find ourselves inspired by your question to head back to this critical realism, which supposes that it is possible to compare different religions, their histories and their respective texts, even if we are culturally or historically conditioned to favor one over the other. So we're saying, yes, I might be a Christian because I grew up in America. However, in spite of that context, I can compare the Bible to the Quran or, or to the Bhagavad Gita or some other religious text, the Book of Mormon or whatnot. We can compare them. We can know things about their history and how they develop. And so let's talk about what sets Christianity apart from other religions, belief systems, and worldviews. All right, I'll go forward with that. Yeah, do it. The Bible. It's written over 15 centuries. The other religious books, to the best of my knowledge, they're not written in that way. They are not uh, spread out out over such a, a, a wide range of time with such a plurality of authors telling one story. There's a unity and a uniformity to its message. We talked about that in the last podcast. There, these highlights are sort of, and these these covenants, they're tying into each other and fulfilling each other and pointing back to each other. And, and there's sort of like an intertextual web that creates sort of a, a strength to the text, to the story, that when you get in there and start reading it, the more you're reading it, the more that comes to life and you see, wow, this is true. So it's like a, the analogy of it's like a hyperlink. Yeah. Right? When you're looking at a document or you're looking at yeah. the internet and you know, if you click on that word, it's going to take you to another place. Yes. And you see that throughout the scriptures. That's there's a great analogy. Hyperlinking going on yeah. all the time. Yeah. I love that. And there's an overwhelming amount of ancient biblical uh, manuscripts providing a high degree of confidence that we can reconstruct the originals. So I, you've probably heard this before, Matt. I hear this quite often. Maybe someone will say, well, we can't really trust the Bible because it's been translated so many times. And I just want to stop someone right there and say, well, hold up just a second. Listen to the assumptions that are embedded in that claim. First of all, the Bible is not just one thing. 
It's, there's not just one Bible in ancient history that gets translated. And as soon as you, let's say it's in Greek, you, as soon as you translate it into Latin, let's say, that Greek text like disappears. Let's imagine like an ancient copy of the Gospel of Matthew. There were probably multiple copies made off of that one original going in different directions. And so to say, well, the Bible has been translated so many times and it is therefore we, we, uh, untrustworthy, that doesn't appreciate how the vastness and the breadth of what the biblical literature is. There are we're talking about sixty-six books, multiple uh, copies going in different directions, and you don't ever have all of those copies in one place and in one time to corrupt. And we have so many of these ancient copies still around today. Now a lot of them have. Have gone by the wayside. That that happens. That's the 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 way the way of um, antiquity. Yeah, writings, antiquity. Yeah. yeah, right. We haven't dug up everything of archaeological significance, and the things that have been dug up, we haven't published or interpreted everything. But there's such a breadth of ancient biblical manuscripts. I think we've got like six thousand ancient uh, Greek, just Greek New Testament manuscripts. That's not even the translations. Now, um, is that the entire New Testament or pieces and parts? Uh, sometimes it's a it'll be an entire codice, like collection of the New Testament. Sometimes it's pieces and parts. But the argument still stands because when you look at all of those, you can compare today and deduce what the original looked like. And we have a high degree of confidence. I, I hear many scholars say, speak of like 97, 98, 99%, I, I'll confidence. say certainty, yeah. confidence of what the original looked like. There are a few minor discrepancies, but most of them don't they're, they're of little significance. They're spell, minor spelling errors. Errors. Maybe uh, the syntax is a little uh, a little bit out of order, but you can still determine what the original looked like. It's not as if we have one Bible. It gets translated, and all of a sudden, though, we don't know what the original said. That's just right. that's just a myth. So I just, um, inserted, just coming alongside what you're saying, uh, I just read this in a book. I used this in a message a few weeks ago, um, which from when this is recorded and released, it would be over a month ago in our This this I Know series, if anybody goes and looks it up. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, I think so. 47, 48. Um, there were a bunch of jars found in a cave in the middle of nowhere. And inside some of those were some ancient biblical manuscripts. And one of the ones we found was one of Isaiah, which dated to somewhere between I think it was 150 and 200 years before Jesus. Yeah. And the reason that's significant, it was, I think it was roughly a thousand years earlier than the earliest copy yep. we had. So the earliest copy yep. we had is coming from somewhere around the 800s AD or, or, uh, CE, depending on where, how you want to yes. date those things. And this is now, so, and what the thing is, it was 95% the identical. Yeah. So what we had to a thousand what we years have. to what we, we had. had. Yeah. Right. So it's a thousand years earlier of a copy, but what that shows you is the way that the copyists respected the documents. And again, the yeah. vast, vast, vast majority of the differences were all small syntax errors, slight, you know, that the, the, the eyes a little wrong or whatever it might right. be that and if I'm not mistaken, this off the top of my head, there were two complete copies of Isaiah found in the, the Dead other one season. wasn't quite as old. It dated right. to a little bit closer to the time of Jesus. Right. So, and so that's yeah. 
two ancient witnesses to the Isaiah that we already had that basically corroborate with the, the Isaiah that we had. And let me say one more thing to translations. Translations aren't a bad thing. They actually are a good thing because guess what? Now we have another witness. It might not be as old as the original, but we see, aha, uh-huh, this was translated into Latin. Or in the case of the Old Testament, it, it was translated into Greek, known as the Septuagint. And although there are, there are discrepancies sometimes. The fact of the matter is two witnesses are better than one. Three are better than two. And we have so many ancient witnesses. And a lot of the cliche skeptical things we hear tossed at the Bible, they end up being just myths or or, or hearsay. Oh, well, we lose, we lose something because of translation or it gets lost in translation. Well, it's not as if the, the original just absolutely disappeared or just vanished in that moment. Rather, many other copies were made from it. So uh, many things come to my mind real quick, Brett, and you have a lot of notes. So I want to get to some no of those. But let me try to make sense of this for the listener. I'm about to give a hypothetical. Nobody walk away from this moment and quote me. This is <laughs> hypothetical. Let's say we have 10 different copies of uh, the book of Matthew. Yes. And one is in Spanish. And is, one is in German. And one is in Latin. And one is in English. And one is in ancient Greek. And maybe one is in, you know, Koine Greek. And one's in Hebrew. Whatever it is. You got all these. There's 10 of them. And they're all 10 in a different language. But when you look at them, they all essentially say the exact same thing. Yep. Rather, or 95% the same thing. Instead of going, well, see, you can't trust it. That ought to make you, the listener, go... Wow, that's pretty amazing. These people respect and value this content so much that when they copied it, they copied it so carefully to get the message. And they copied it in the first place. In the ancient world, writing material was not easy to come by. And so the fact that they're copying these things over and over and over again tells us something about their respect for it and should let us know that they valued it very very And what I hear you saying is we don't have 10 of these, Matt. We have at least of the New Testament, 6,000, yeah, either almost, partial or full. I think it's the upper 5,000s, almost right. 6,000. So just Ancient. again, to paint the picture for the listener. Right. And the other thing I heard you saying is we're talking 66 books. That's the Bible, 39 Old Testament, 27, 27 New Testament. They don't all have the same author. We don't know how many authors. We, we ballpark 44, yeah. 40 mm-hmm. plus authors is a right. safe way to say it. You said 1,500 years. Roughly, yeah. Three different continents. Yeah, I didn't, you, not, I didn't add that, but yes. And at least three languages, yes. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Aramaic. And the analogy I like to use on this point, Brett, is um, I think of it like the story Lost. And if anybody was a Lost TV show fan, if not, I really enjoyed the show. Go look it up. But the Lost writers had two primary authors, and then they added in J.J. Abrams occasionally to weigh in on things. And right. they actually had to hire somebody to keep them on track because they kept <laughs> contradicting themselves. Now, these are two guys sitting in a room brainstorming over a five-year span, and they keep contradicting themselves. And yet we're talking 66 books, 44, 40 plus authors, 1500 years, three continents, three languages. And they tell the same story. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're, that's what we're saying. So what we're saying to you is if you're a Christian out there, it's okay to ask questions. Absolutely. About your faith. It's okay to dig. Why should I believe this? Just because somebody else did. Good to ask questions. Absolutely. God would enjoy that. I think just when you run into uncertainty, don't give up, hang on, keep, keep digging, keep asking questions. It's worth it. But also if I'm a Muslim, if I'm from Islam, if I'm a Buddhist, why not also ask questions? Mm -hmm. Why not just, don't just accept it. Poke holes. Yeah. Okay, so back to what you were saying. Well, and beyond that, we also have something unique in the Bible, um, namely fulfilled 
predictive prophecies and promises. Okay. Uh, lots of them. Now, I don't want to get I don't want to get sidetracked here because that is dozens of podcasts in and of itself. Of course. Um, and we should do that sometime. We should. But but let me let me just say that the amounts of these predictive prophecies from the Old Testament into the New Testament and from the Old Testament into the Old Testament is amazing and overwhelming. There is a little bit of a debate amongst uh, Christian scholars on how to interpret them. I'm actually doing a, a workshop on the messianic nature of the Old Testament at a at a camp in northern Indiana next week. But let's just say there are, if you begin to look into that and look at some of the prominent ones like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, 2 Samuel cha- chapter 7, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, um, Psalm 110, 1, the one that Jesus quoted quite often, mm, the yeah. Lord said to my Lord, it, it becomes sort of eerie. If you're, if you're willing to open up to the possibility that God can speak to us, it becomes eerie how much of the Old Testament is, is, is making sense or coming to fulfillment in the New Testament. Okay. It's just amazing. So since you, I was going to ask you to pick one, but since you actually quoted Psalm 110, yeah, right? 110.1. So uh, can you unpack that for us? Why well, is that used? What does it mean? Well, first of all, if I'm not mistaken, it is the most quoted. I think uh, you're correct. I just read something I think it's the most quoted uh, Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament. I think it's some, something like eight different authors in the New Testament quote it. Jesus quotes it. And he takes, he says, what do you do with this, basically, to the religious leaders? What do you make of this? And I'm paraphrasing, if the son of... M- Let me read it. Read it. Quick. Just read it. Yeah. This is in the ESV, English Standard Version. Right. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, right. this is King David right. writing this. So who is he talking about? Yeah, who's that second Lord? We have no problem with the first Lord because he talks about Lord all the time, but all of a sudden he's talking about this other Lord. Yeah. And Jesus brings this up and says, basically, what do you, what do, you do with this? And he, and he says something to the effect, um, you can look it up. Jesus says, how can, and they know this, well, well let me do it, let me go at it this way. If David says to my Lord, uh, let me make it. I'm going to make you um, your enemies a footstool to my feet. The the thing that's obvious is they know this is a messianic passage. Mm. I have to give away the punchline first because he's saying, "How can the Lord also be the son of David?" Yes. And so we know how can this one who's coming from David's line yeah. also be Lord? Yeah. Well, what I find interesting is that we know that not only Jesus but the Jewish leaders he was speaking to knew that they understood that as a messianic prophecy. Okay, so let me try to make sense because I think what I hear you saying is David had many sons, but um, one son led after him, became a king after him. Let's use him as an example. His name was Solomon. Solomon. So David would never look at Solomon and call him Lord. My Lord. No. Never, because that's his son. He's the king. Now, when he dies, Solomon can become king. But until then... He is the king. Right. So then you can't say, because many would argue uh, back in that day, right? Maybe he means Solomon, but he can't mean Solomon. Right. So you're saying when David sat down and wrote Psalm 110, somehow it's a prophetic psalm. He's not just writing a song. He's not just right. writing poetry. He's not just write, journaling out his feelings. The Lord has revealed something right. to him. Right. And skeptics today might say, well, the early church is making this up or or Jesus was just abusing this verse. But what I find interesting is when you read about it in the Gospels, the way Jesus is discussing it with the Jewish leaders lets us know that they all assumed it was a messianic prophecy. That wasn't even the discussion. Right. The discussion is how can the descendant of Je- uh, how can the Messiah be yeah. 
also the Lord of David. Yes. And and we we as Christians, we kind of jump to what we believe we already know is the answer is that's because, well, the Messiah is also God and right. um, God in the flesh. flesh. Yeah. yeah. And so he's Lord back there. And yeah. yes, God is one, but there's also a threeness and a oneness to him. Not That's a whole other podcast. Another podcast. Another podcast. <laughs> I feel like we keep saying this. I got to tell you this though. Yeah, go ahead. I got to tell you this. And, and this, this deals with um, the idea of God being one and and particularly in in when Islam and Christianity come up against each other. Now, when this was explained to me, I this I got chills up my back that I can still remember. I learned this when working on my second master's degree at Lincoln uh, Seminary. My my professor, I think it was uh, John Dr. John Castellin at the time. He was talking about the concept of one. So in Islam, there is this uh, notion of God being one, and I think it's they they call it takfid if I'm pronouncing that cor- correctly. And it's the idea that God is sort of an impenetrable monism or monad. Nothing gets in or out of him. In fact, I think some Islamic scholars will say not even God's characteristics are a part of his essence because he's impenetrable, so impenetrable. Now, historically speaking, I'm kind of like, that's that seems like a reaction to the Trinity, like a, mm. right? That's that's how I'm viewing it through my the the structures right. in my mind. Of course, but, yeah, yeah, right. I'm admitting that. But in 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 Hebrew, there are two words for one, uh, and I am not a Hebrew expert. Uh, this was told to me, and I've I've asked some other scholars, and so far they've all said, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. There's a word like tachfid that is yachid, and it is sort of that same thing. It's like an indivisible uh, monad. But there's another word in Hebrew for one, echad. I've heard of this. Echad. Yeah, I've heard of this. Uh, echad. And it's the same word used in early chapters of Genesis. The two shall become one flesh. Yeah. As far as I know, God is referred to only as echad, one, which means I don't want to read the Trinity or the threeness or the one of the oneness. I don't want to read it anachronistically back into the Old Testament. However, yeah. it does seem like the door is open and the groundwork is laid for the later revelation yeah. that is to come, that God is one in essence, but three in person, Father, Son, and Spirit. So if, and by the way, this is a, if Trinity is a, I would love to do a podcast on that someday, <laughs> but there is a scholar, um, he's got some ideas that may be out there for something you've ever read or listened to for my listeners. But if you are interested in looking up Dr. Michael Heiser, um, you can even find this on YouTube. He's got this whole thing about the Trinity in the Old Testament, and it is pretty phenomenal, even in so far as just to give this one example. I think it's a, it's a story that's easier to follow than some of the heavier stuff. But if you look at uh, the story of Moses and the burning bush, and God speaks, and he's like, you're on holy ground. And then it says, an angel of the Lord speaks. And Dr. Heiser makes this point that so often in the Old Testament, there's this angel of the Lord who is not God, but is God. A Hebrew scholar would just have to say, I see it. I could tell you about it, but I don't know what to do with it. Right. Yeah. It's like, he's there. Well, he is God, but he's not God. It's Dan. It's the Daniel passage exactly. too. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. The son of man goes to the ancient of days, but then yeah. both the, the son of man is given divine titles yes. and, and yes. authority and yep. things. It's another great example. Yeah. And also in the very beginning, Genesis 1, 1, let us make man in yeah, our image. The There's a whole plural. thing there about who are we talking yeah. about in this plurality? We're we talking about the angelic beings or yeah. So that's another conversation for another day. So coming back though, what I want to focus on for our time is what sets Christianity apart from other religions. And if I lived in another part of the world, would I just believe that? So what you're, what I hear you saying is let's test our beliefs. Yes. Christians, test your beliefs, ask hard questions. Muslims, test your beliefs. 
Buddhist, test your beliefs. Let's see how they stack up. So tell me about your friend. Yeah, compare the books. Um, Where is your friend in this process? Um, well, we haven't talked for a few months, but I've left him. Um, so our ministry made a, a video. Tell us about your ministry real quick. Uh, um, K-Paul. So we, we, one of the main things we do, we create short apologetic videos. About seven to 10 minutes is our, is, is our aim. But we want the content to be able to stand up to academic skeptics. So I recruit other scholars. Um, if, especially in areas that I don't ha command a knowledge of. And then we create these videos and we recruit bilinguals to translate them into other languages because we have a heart for producing apologetic material, Christian apologetic material for other languages, because there's a great need across the globe for this. We've heard this from missionaries and Christians around the world. We don't have William Lane Craig in, in our language. We don't have Josh McDowell or Gary Habermas or John Lennox in, in our language. Can you please, you know, and so we, we create these things. And so we we, one of our videos we created was defending the New Testament canon and why those 27 books were chosen. And uh, I think on Sunday, you're going to allow me to hear in your church speak on this a little bit. Yep. And that video was in response to a youth pastor friend in Florida and a conversation who wanted more information on the canon and a conversation I was having with Valbon. Um, we remade that video and it is already, I think in four languages. Wow. Um, so we have that. it in Albanian, his mother tongue in German and in English. And, uh, it will, I think it's come out in Spanish also. So if anybody out there, by the way, listening is a fantastic, fantastic language, uh, linguist, and you, you want to offer your time and resources ministry, man, Brett would love Look to talk to you. us up. We are looking for help. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So real quick, you use the word canon and I need you to maybe do this even on uh, Sunday. What, what does the word canon mean? So it's basically the books that made it into the new Testament. They passed the test. They were the ones chosen as authoritative for the church down through the centuries. Even yeah. today, when we talk about star Wars and Marvel, everybody asks, so when we're making new stories, what is the canon we're using? Because as you know, you've got all these Star Wars yeah. stories and cartoons and offshoots and movies. Sometimes they contradict each other. Yeah. And so what, what are we going back to? What's our source material? Yes. Well, in the New Testament, there are extra biblical books, yep. things like the Gospel of Thomas. By the way, Time Magazine, History Channel loves to bring these books oh, out. Yeah. And they were written a couple hundred years after yes. Jesus. They don't have the same authenticity. Yes. And there came a point, there was a, a group of people who came to together and said, these are the books that we believe either came from the disciples, the apostles, yes. or direct contemporaries. Right. One of their associates. Give me an example. Um, Luke. Okay. Uh, if that's what you meant yeah, by an example, yeah, yep. Luke, Luke traveled, was believed to have traveled with Paul. I mean, there's all kinds of internal evidence in the new Testament yeah. that he did. Yeah. And so Luke is giving us things that are from the apostles. And so he gets in and I'll give you another counter example. Yeah. Yes. You have like later, we would call like Thomas, like a Gnostic gospel. Right. He's giving us a different Jesus with some things overlapping, but that's why he doesn't get in or the gospel of Jude or yeah. some of these other other, uh, the gospel, I think of Mary Magdalene, there's one, yeah. but then you have another category that we'll call they're Orthodox, but they're not apostolic. So like the shepherd of Hermas or Clement of Rome, a very early, or the Didache, very early, good Christian material that I would say lines up with the teaching of the new Testament, but it isn't early enough to get into the canon. Right. And it's so good to know that we have these different categories because it lets us know that like the council of Carthage or Hippo, when they're the, when they're officially ratifying the canon, by the way, they were just affirming an authority that 
was already there. Right. They, this was the first time that they got together from around the world yeah. and were discussing this. And you know, which books do you use? Which books does your has your church used all the way back to the apostles? And let's let's talk about this. It's good to have these different categories because we can see the church says, okay, that one it's heresy. It doesn't teach what the what we've believed since the apostles. Yeah. Those ones over here, like uh, the shepherd of Hermas and Clement and the Didache, they're not heretical, but they don't go back to the apostles. And so we can see them, they're placed in different categories. Right. They knew what they were doing. I believe the church got it right. Yeah. I'm with you. I also think God was overseeing the process, but I want my listener to hear uh, say this, and if Brett has anything he wants to add. So a lot of times when you turn on, say, the History Channel or you turn on um, Time Magazine or whatever it is, that, first of all, um, I don't want to, what's the right word? Intriguing cells, right? Yes. Clickbait cells, and it always has. So it does back in my childhood. Conspiracy theory Conspiracy cells. theory cell. And so this idea that um, there's a group of people with a lot of power, control, and influence, and they've made sure, they, they made sure that books that contradicted the scriptures did didn't make it in. And so that there was a certain group of books that did because they wanted to control your world, control your life. That's actually not true. And Brett, I don't know if you're prepared to tell us some of the questions, you mentioned some, some of the questions the canon group, that, that group and those councils determined to help get their stuff together. But when you start to see it, they didn't ask, what message do we like? No. In fact, what we do know, the number, and you've already mentioned it, Matt, the number one criteria, was it from an apostle or his associates? In fact, my, my good friend, uh, Pat Mahoney down at Colicchio Biblico, yeah. we've had this discussion. We joke yeah. about it. Um, cause I spoke on the canon there and he looked at me, he said, Brett, let's be honest. That's the only thing that matters. And I said, you're, <laughs> you're right. You're right. But some other things they, they asked is, was this, was this a book that your church has, cause they're coming from different regions and different languages is Latin speaking, Greek speaking. Are these books that your church has used in worship and for teaching all the way down, can you trace this back to the apostle? And is there an internal sort of claim hmm. to the authority? Hmm. And and I think when you read the New Testament and you're looking for that, you'll see it. You'll, you'll see it. Uh, you'll see the authors telling us why they've written. Let, let me just give you a little quick example with yeah. Luke, and then I'll go back to yes. oh, comparing, yes. comparing the religions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Luke, as you mentioned, was not an apostle, but he was an associate. And one of the things I find fascinating, some scholars doubt uh, some of Paul's letters. That always troubled me when I heard that. I've got, I found a lot of peace uh, later on about that, and I do affirm all of all of Paul's letters. I'm just not convinced by the the accusations against them, uh, but I will admit I'm not an expert in this area per se. However, one of my favorite passages, and I'll talk about this a little bit on Sunday, is at the end of Second Timothy. Paul is writing Timothy, and he mentions Luke alone is with me, mm -hmm. and then he goes down a few verses. And Matt, maybe you recall what he says. I don't want to put you on the no, spot. I, I'm not, it's not drawn up. I'm not. No, but he, but he says, Timothy, when you come, bring my yes, parchments, bring my parchments yeah. and my cloak. Yep. I wonder if Luke isn't there writing Luke and or Acts. Yeah. And he's such the great historian he is. He says, Paul, get those other copies you have. I <laughs> yeah. want to do my research. I want to make this superb. Yeah. It, I'm not, it's not yeah. absolute certain of course but it is a good setting yeah paul's at the end of his life luke things are winding down yeah. and luke is writing probably finishing up maybe acts yeah. um there, he's there at rome and he wants as 
every shred of information that he can get his hands yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. It is. Okay, so you have some other notes for I us. Because let's remind ourselves, we started with this question, how do I know Christianity is aligned up against other religions? And what you've heard so far to summarize is you can trust what's in front of you. The guys who chose the books that went into the Bible went through a scrupulous, I can't remember the number. Do you remember the number? It was like 25 questions or what? I, there was like X amount of questions and proofs that each book had to go through. Yeah, go it's been it's been a while know, since I've lo- looked at that exactly. But it, but those those three things: yeah. the is it apostolic? The yeah. number one number one yeah. thing. Yeah. Can you trace it down through right. the churches, yeah. um, through the centuries? And what is there an internal sort of claim? Does yeah. the, does that book seem to presume that it's yeah. a th- own authority? And so then they eliminated those other books. And part of what yeah. we're saying there is you can trust the message within the book itself. Absolutely, and that's not the same. Is other world religions right. and and let, let, let's let's yeah. let's go, go back. Let's look at some other examples. Now let's talk about Jesus real, real yeah. quickly as we load into go into this. Notice how other religions, Matt, and, and and our listener. I think you'll if you step back, you'll realize this. Notice how other religions that come after Christianity, we might say, uh, are largely born in reaction to Jesus Christ. They feel obligated to somehow make sense of Jesus. Mm. Everyone wants him on their team. Everyone has an aversion of Jesus, uh, whether it's an ancient Gnostic uh, like Marcion of Sinope, the Docetist who says that Jesus only appeared, he said that basically Jesus only appeared as a human, or that God would never take on dirty, evil human flesh. He felt obligated to make sense of Jesus. Mm, but he right? didn't feel obligated to make sense of whoever. Right, right. right. Okay. Um, well, let's look, let's consider Muhammad. And again, this is just a short summary. Of there course. are definitely scholars who could articulate this much more thoroughly than I could, but th- um, through whom Islam comes to us, uh, Muhammad, he viewed Jesus as the Messiah. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he ref- the Quran refers to him as sinless, refers to him as the word of God. Mm. Um, to Jesus as the word of God, a mighty prophet. And we must ask where Muhammad got such ideas. Muhammad seems to sense an obligation to offer an explanation of Jesus. Now, if if my Muslim friend was sitting here, he would immediately say, it wasn't Muhammad, that book was revealed. But I'm cheating and using my Christian perspective to say, yes, but I see some ideas that I can imagine a Muhammad having living six centuries after Jesus, having heard about Jesus and sort of trying to make sense of him. Yeah. And so I, I'm using my lens to sort of, I'm going to guess some of our listeners don't even realize what you just said, that Muhammad came roughly 600 years after yes. Jesus. And, and so the obvious implication is if I want to know who Jesus actually was, which source am I going to go with? One that's written within a few decades right? or, or 600 or years, later. 600 years later. Right. Let's talk about the Latter-day Saint, the Mormon church, and Joseph Smith, their founder. He uses biblical terms. He'll say Jesus is the son of God. But what's actually going on there? He's infusing it with new meaning. He's talking about Jesus in the sense of a firstborn spirit child of the father, who, by the way, was once a human man just like us and is now procreating spirit children with his once earthly wives in all eternity as God of this planet. That's a completely different concept of God than it, that is found in the Bible. I'm no expert in Mormonism. Just to make clear what you said, spirits existed in heaven. 
God gave them flesh. They came down here. This is a test. If you succeed the test, you could become a God like Jesus. Jesus came down. He's the first one to pass the test. And now he's equipping you like he did Joseph Smith. I'm not saying we believe this. I'm saying I'm trying to summarize what I've learned of Mormon theology as best as I can. Right. So you therefore could become a God and you can own your own planet. I think it is if you pass the test and they've got all these different telestial and celestial things that happen in heaven. But it's not, it's not the gospel we see portrayed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First yes. Corinthians, and, and so on. And the whole concept of God is utterly different. This this is so important because in the Bible, yeah. both Old and New Testament, yeah. God is creator. He is other yes. than his creation. Now, in Jesus, he takes on flesh and dwells among us. Yeah. But God exists outside, transcendent of, sovereign over yeah. creation. He is not a former human who somehow achieved divinity. Right. Whereas that is the concept of God in Mormonism, regardless of whether or not they use our term, uh, Christian terminology. Right. Right. And again, Joseph Smith came along roughly when? The mid 19th century. Mid 19th century. And notice this. I'm going to, well, never mind. I'm going to come back to this. Okay. But but notice, think of how we find out about Jesus, the information that Muhammad gives us, the information that Joseph Smith gives us. Now let's talk about one more. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, okay. he makes Jesus a lesser God. He 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 um, uh, espouses a, what is known as henotheism. There are it's actually polytheism, but there's an sort of like a supreme God, and then Jesus is a lesser God. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, is the is the brother uh, of Satan and or the arch or he yeah, is the archangel Michael. Michael the yeah, archangel. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah the Bible says nothing uh, of that. But here's the point: Who is the one? An only historical figure that everyone who, after having come in contact with him, feels obligated to explain or somehow fit into their worldview. It's Jesus. Everyone has a version of Jesus. Everyone wants him on their team or (laughs) representing their worldview. This is also a reason I know, not with omniscience or absolute Cartesian certainty, but it's a reason I know that the word of God is true because Jesus, as the incarnate word, is accomplishing Isaiah 55, 11, which where God says, my word will go out for me. It does not return to me void, but it accomplishes what I I purposed it to do. Yes, yeah. what I purposed it to do. We know that Jesus, as the word of God made flesh, is true because of the way his waves of divine influence ripple across every worldview and or religion that comes into contact with him. He is the stone that the builders rejected, becoming the capstone for the body of Christ, but also a stumbling block for those who reject him. And what better stumbling block than the one that every worldview and religion coming after him feels obligated to have to make sense of. In fact, I'm writing my doctoral dissertation, my my PhD research on how negative higher criticism, skeptics of Jesus, number, number one, they can't seem to agree on who he was, but number two, they cannot abandon the task of writing about him. This has been going on for 300 years. Jesus literally will not go away. No matter how hard we tried to get rid of him, he is not going away. Yeah. And so Matt, quite frankly, we see other religions and worldviews stumbling over Jesus. And I've with, even heard it quoted that like Mahatma Gandhi, who didn't start a religion, you know, but is famous for saying something like, you know, I, I think Jesus is a great moral teacher. I believe in everything he said. It's his people I have a yeah. problem with. But yeah. again, even if he felt the need to deal with Jesus. Yep. Yep. And he recognized he, he's the cream of the crop. Right. Mahatma yeah. Gandhi recognized Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let, let me give you one, one other example. Do you guys like comedy? Yeah, I yep. love comedy. You like, and, and I I'll think keep, I'm kind of funny too. <laughs> 
Well, I'll keep I'll keep it clean. Yeah, I'm going to mention a, a, a comedian here. Okay. For the most part, he's clean. Okay. But uh, if you go listen to him and he says something that's not, yeah. uh, you don't want to be held accountable. <laughs> it's Matt's fault. <laughs> Thank you. So maybe you've heard of the comedian Jim Gaffigan. Yeah, I liked you. Yeah, he. So he's a nominal Catholic, right? right. And yeah. he uh, openly, like he confesses oh, that. Yeah, and he does a lot of great religious humor. I mean, he has the people yeah. rolling because he yeah. talks about Jesus enough to make you uncomfortable, but enough to also have you cracking right. up. Right. And so, um, I, I, you know, I think of like one, one of the, one of the times he, he's talking about Jesus and he imagines this conversation between Jesus and God, the father. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he says, Hey, he impersonates Jesus. Hey, Hey dad. Um, um, you know, this whole crucifixion thing. Yeah. Yes. And you're dying for the sins of the world. Yeah. Dad, let's talk about that. And I'm paraphrasing. Of course. What about, uh, instead of that, what if we do a, a fundraiser? <laughs> <laughs> no, now get cracking on your miracles. And and the crowd laughs, right? Yeah. Now think about it. There's no way that everybody in that crowd is a Bible-believing Christian. No. But everybody knows that it's funny. Everybody laughs because why? They know that Jesus never said that. Right. Jim Gaffigan is playing with the biblical portrait of Jesus, which is tucked away in the back of everyone's mind, and they laugh. His joke exposes that they actually know that Jesus never said that, and that's why it's funny. Right. Yeah. Jesus transcends all kinds of things. Yeah. And he, he, he shows up as the backdrop of our way of thinking in, in, in humor, yeah. in, real, in, real, in religious humor. And so... Coming back to this with Marcion, the the earliest I mentioned him, the one of the earliest uh, heretics, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, or Charles Taze Russell, all of their versions of Jesus stem from one person standing up against the established belief of the church and saying, "This is who it is. This is this is the version of Jesus that I give you." Mm-hmm. It, it, you can trace it back one source, whether it's Marcion. Muhammad, um, Joseph Smith, Charles Taze Russell. We might think of Jude 3, and I'm just sort yeah. of paraphrasing it. The faith once and for all entrusted to the saints, plural, plural. With a new version of Jesus, they're giving us one man alone in a cave, allegedly receiving revelations, one man finding holy tap tablets, uh, translating them from behind a curtain um, for no one else to see. One man's commentary on scripture, allegedly correcting all of the church's theological errors. But the source of these other belief systems ends up being a singularity. What does that mean? One, one person, one person in a cave, one person behind a curtain, one person saying, you all have misunderstood it. Let me correct it for you. Whereas with Jesus, the origin of what we know about him. Now, he is a singularity, but the sources, I have to say it in plural because it's plural. Right. The sources we have about him, the apostles and their associates in that the early church, it was never a singularity. That is completely different from those who try to give us a different form of Jesus. So not only are they much later, but they're one person saying, I figured it out, or it's been revealed to me and I'm giving it to you. Whereas with the, with Jesus, the historical Jesus, he doesn't write a word. 
Yeah. Years ago, and to your point, Brett, I also heard a, a pastor say, and have you ever noticed whenever a human creates a religion, it always oppresses someone? Yes. So using some of those examples, some of those religions you mentioned, I won't go through each one so I'm not an expert, but you, you get profound uh, slavery or you get profound rape and the abuse of women. You get men yes. in power. Oh, by the way, the men get multiple wives. Of course. The wives don't get multiple husbands, you know, but you not get- Not just here on earth, but also in heaven. In, in heaven. Yeah. And afterwards. And so if you do these deeds and if you do these things, then you- it gets even greater. Like it becomes a self-fulfilling. Like yes. if you were going to create a religion, the religion would somehow serve you. But Jesus created a religion where he served everyone. Yes. Amen. He dies for the world. But that leads me to a point then. So are you saying the claims of Christianity are unique and different? Not just, and they're testing, but the claims of Christianity. It's a good religion. Oh, oh yes. And it, and I would, you know, we can, some, some will hesitate to call it a religion. I, I call it Christianity a religion when comparing it to other religions. I have no problem with that, but yes, yes, they're utter, utterly unique. The one God of all creation coming down, the incarnation that that's, that's utterly unique, but then existing as a human for which we have eyewitness testimony mm. that's unparalleled and unprecedented in all hum, in all human history. Yeah, there's nothing like it. Now you'll have, uh, you know, think people who will try to say, well, yes, there were other ancient mythical gods that maybe they had some something that looked like a resurrection. Um, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, most of those texts come after Jesus, um, even though the belief might come bef- from beforehand. But it's not a human. It's a mythical god. It's right. not a human like Jesus yeah. who claims to be God. And who dies on the cross is, we're, we're told by all these different sources, both in the Bible and outside of the Bible, and then is seen after his crucifixion and burial by multiple witnesses on multiple occasions. Just just real quick to that, some try to say it was a hallucin- hallucination. Gary Habermas, uh, whom I got to study under, points out hallucinations are individual events. Yes. It's something going on in one person's mind. Right. Something as a mass hallucination is a contradiction in terms. Even if everybody in here, to build on what you just said, even if everybody in here went on some acid trip right now or some took a magic mushroom, something, we would have different visions. Yeah. We would have different hallucinations. That's your point. Right. We Even if we all hallucinated, even if we all said we saw Jesus, when we started to describe what we saw, it wouldn't all be the same thing right. because that's coming from within my mind, my body. Right. So then to have over 500 people claiming the same vision. Right. It's impossible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, a, yes. it's, it's, it's not, it's not something that's, do, I don't think documented yeah. in, in medical history, history. Right. Right. But what we wanted to do is to um, try to put some thoughts before you. What I hope you hear us saying today, both Brett and I affirm this, ask hard questions. Every day God wakes up, he puts his big boy pants on. He's not afraid of your questions. He can handle them. And don't worry about whether or not God's going to be offended. He died on a cross. He can handle it. Whatever you got, bring it and look, do some research, do some study, use your brain, use your heart, use your strength, use your, use all of it. And uh, we hope to see you next time. God bless.